look at this beautiful family. Have you guys done modeling before? Check out dad here. Strong, handsome, king of the jungle, leader of the pack. You know what? I am leader of the pack. I go to work and provide for a family that respects and loves me. Yeah, right. King of the jungle? More like a pussycat. And who is this beauty? Mom's got it all together, right? Super mom, super wife. And the hair looks great, too. That's right, super mom. This whole family revolves around me. What a control freak. I can't wait till I'm old enough to move out of here. Hey, kids. Aren't you proud to have parents like these? Loser. Wimp. Nag. Psycho. Okay, here we go. One big happy family. Ouch, right? Yeah, that hurts a little, stings a little. I think we're all guilty of that a bit, right? Appearing to be one way, but in reality, uh, something else entirely goes on. I've always wondered, you know, what goes on behind the doors of the people in our church, you know, when we come into church and we're all smiles and everything looks great, but yet sometimes we know if we really see beyond, behind the door, there's a lot more going on than what we care to admit or even sometimes want to know. I've asked Samuel to help me out today. He's praying for our message, right? He's up here praying diligently. He's actually representing a, a painting that was auctioned off a long time ago back in London. And the painting was a picture of a monk, it appeared, who was kneeling at a dinner table praying and what looked to be a Bible laying beneath him. But upon closer examination of the painting, you could see that the monk was actually holding what Andrew is holding here today. I mean, Samuel, what did I call you, Andrew? Samuel is holding here today, which is, is a lemon. And below him, the Bible was actually a pan that he was squeezing the lemon juice into. So give Samuel a hand. Uh, sorry I called you by your brother's name. I do that all the time, don't I? Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And this represents, and that video represents what Jesus is going to deal with today. He's going to expose hypocrisy among the people of Israel. And so I, I, I want today the, the sourness of the lemon to remind you of the sourness that is in God's taste buds when we pretend to be something that we're not. When we put on airs like we got it together, we act like that our family, you know, we're, we're doing well. And in reality, we have too much pride to admit what truly is going on in our lives and in our hearts. And so I'll give you a, just a, a really brief definition, a really lightweight definition of hypocrisy, because as you think about it, it's a pretty deep subject. It gets, it gets pretty deep, but, and we're going to talk more about it in a minute. But I, I just say uh, the appearance of godliness um, is hypocrisy is nothing more than skin deep holiness. Let's just call it that. The appearance of godliness, it's a skin deep holiness. Having an appearance of godliness, which isn't authenticated by what's happening in our private lives, in our, in our homes, in what really is going on with us. And that's exactly the case of what's going on in the Jewish culture in this part in Mark. Pretty much the whole ministry of Jesus, he's exposing the religious establishment that exists there in Israel. The, the religious leaders pretended to be something that they were not. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21. Verses uh, 12 through 21. I'm going to read verses 12 
and uh, through 14 here to start us off. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at this passage of Scripture. So start in verse 12 of chapter 11. Uh, Mark writes, uh, on the following day, and let's just pause there for a second for those who weren't here last week. Roy did a great job. Watch the message. Incredible sermon. Uh, what we refer to as Palm Sunday when Jesus had this grand entrance into Jerusalem. If you were here the week before, you remember Jesus ascended the Jericho Road up to the city of Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem and he's greeted with incredible fanfare. He has this mass of people coming with him. He's got people uh, lining the streets. They think that Jesus is the Messiah they've waited for. They believe that to be true, although their understanding of the Messiah and the kingdom are messed up. And Jesus comes in. They're throwing palm uh, branches on the, on the ground. Jesus is riding in on a donkey. It's an amazing, amazing sight. It's incredible. And all this happened. Jesus goes through this parade. He comes out. He walks into the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. He leaves. And so we pick up the passage today in verse 12. He went to Bethany. And so on the following day when he came from Bethany, so after he left the temple, he went to a couple miles away to the city called Bethany. He had some friends there, probably spent the night with them. And then the next day he leaves there, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. And it says he was hungry. He, I, and, you know, don't, let's, let's just don't fly by that because that's significant because we've seen over the weeks in the book of Mark that Jesus, his humanity, all God, all man, we see Jesus in emotions. We see his humanity come out in things like this uh, as far as being hungry. He, he gets upset. He cries over Lazarus. So we have seen over and over again the humanity of Jesus uh, displayed, and the same is true here. So he's hungry, and seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it, had, it was not in the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I pray that you will open our hearts to your spirit speaking through your word. God, I pray for those who are far from you, those who do not know Jesus, that today will be their day of salvation. God, for those who uh, have basing their, their faith upon uh, their words, but there's no actions there to authenticate that. God, I pray that the, the verse Roy mentioned last week, that we'll examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith. God, I pray that you will allow this hypocrisy that exists in all of us to be exposed. And God, I pray that we will uh, find greater trust in Jesus and his grace as a result of this passage and this message today, in Jesus' name, amen. So what's the deal with Jesus? I mean, I don't know if he, was he like me? When I'm hungry, what do I do? I get grouchy. Do you get grouchy when you're hungry? Is Jesus just grouchy? He's in a bad mood, and so he's like talking to this fig tree. He's cursing this fig tree. Why would you do that? Look at verse 13 again. Uh, he sees from a distance, he sees this tree. It gives an appearance like it's promising, like there's going to be some figs on there. He's hungry. He wants to eat, but he comes to it, and there's nothing but leaves, but it seems a little unfair, right, because it's not season yet. So why would he be so upset that he doesn't find figs on a tree that's not quite in season? But I think what this passage is getting at here, it's about a month before figs should be on this tree. And, and I think what, what Jesus is pointing out, and this is going to be a parable, it's going to be a picture, an object lesson, as they see this tree from a distance, it gives the appearance 
as if it is producing figs, that it's going to satisfy their, their hunger. And so it, it gives this expectation that it's something, and from a distance it promises something great, but in reality, there's nothing there for them. There's nothing there. Hypocrisy, right? From a distance, it looks grand. The family on the screen, maybe your life, it looks great. You can paint a good picture in front of people. But in reality, it covers up the inner sloth, the inner laziness spiritually, the, 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 the turmoil, the struggles, the sins that are in your heart that you don't want anyone else to know. And so, so true, from a distance, a lot of things can look good from a distance, right? I, I've said this before, but you uh, impress people uh, up close, you know, they, they, they think, if, if they, you, we think that if we see somebody from a distance, oh, they're so impressed by their, them, look at them. But as we get to know them, we're impacted by them uh, up, up close. I said that the opposite way. We impress people from a distance, we impact them up close. And, and so be aware of that, that as we sometimes can stand at a distance, and maybe some of the, even the preachers that we follow on the internet or watch on TV, we're like, oh man, that ministry is so great. And so many people, they sit at home and watch church because they don't want to engage in a body of Christ because they can be hurt, they can be damaged, they see the flaws. So it's much safer to sit at a distance, observe, and not get into the mix, into the mess. But that's not what God's called us to do. He's called us to join in the mess. You'll fit right in if you do that. Those working, watching online, uh, we don't have a big audience that watches online, but it's growing bigger and bigger, and it's reaching more and more people. And I want to encourage you that are watching online to join in this body. You can only, from a distance, um, find a superficial sort of religiosity. You need to engage in the body of Christ, be part of the body, being part of the DNA here. And so Jesus says, look, this tree's promising something. He sees it from a distance, but he found, finds nothing on it. It's worthless to Jesus. It provides nothing for Jesus and his hunger and the hunger of his disciples. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was used to symbolize the nation of Israel. And so that's what he's getting at here. Israel had all these spiritual advantages. God had given them so much, but just like this barren fig tree, Israel had a show of fruitfulness, but had proven unfaithful with respect to God's purpose for her. There was an appearance, the temple, religious activity going on. It appeared like there was worship happening. But Jesus exposed this and he says, there's no fruit. There's not fruit here. And so the people of Israel, how were they being hypocrites? God had called Israel to be a light to the nation. Yet Israel, like we tend to be and do, we turn inward and we become very comfortable with ourselves and our frozen chosen group of people around us, the holy huddle, right? And we forget that God has called us to be missionaries, to go and scatter into this community throughout the work week and make the name of Jesus known. And so it's, it's really easy to fall in this pattern. That's what Israel had done. They had forsaken their mission, and they went through this empty ritual, these traditions, and they became very elite in their belief of themselves, but did not fulfill what God had called them to fulfill, the sin of hypocrisy. Let's talk about this for a second, the sin of hypocrisy, a little bit more, because there is some confusion from people on what exactly this is and what exactly it isn't. Let me say this, and I've said this uh, years ago in our Corinthian series. Let me just say it again. 
The sin of hypocrisy is not that we're more messed up than we seem. That's true for every one of us in here. That's not hypocrisy. That you get to know John Woodrum, and John's more messed up than what I might appear standing on the stage on Sunday mornings. But you know what? The same is true for you. If we investigate your life like Jesus investigated the fig tree, or you investigate Samuel here praying, you begin to see that everything's not what it seems to be. But it's not that we're more messed up. The sin of hypocrisy is using the appearance of goodness, of morality, to hide sin and evil. You give an appearance to trick and deceive. So if I claim not to do something sinful, and you see me do it, I'm not guilty of hypocrisy. I'm guilty of sinning, but I'm not guilty of hypocrisy if I, don't, if I claim not to do something sinful. And so, let's, let's take an example. You know, if I stood here and I said, you'll never see me ever text and drive. And then you see me out texting and driving, I'm a hypocrite, right? But if I sit here and said, you know, I try my very best not to text and drive. But sometimes I fail utterly. I get a text and I try to do the whole Siri speaking thing and it messes it up. And then I reach around my phone and I touch a few at the, at the stoplight. You know, it, it, there, therein is, I'm, 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 I'm breaking the law. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. But I'm not guilty of hypocrisy unless I claim something that, that is not, and then I don't have any intention really to perform that way. And so it's tricky. It, it's, it, it's hard to really, even in our own hearts, get down to understanding what's hypocrisy and what is just us in the flesh struggling. But let me say this, and this is important. Self-deception and hypocrisy are always very close companions to one another. Self-deception and hypocrisy, they go hand in hand with one another. Because we're so good at deceiving ourselves, coming up with excuses, thinking we're better than we actually are. And we so easily, have you ever done this? Honestly, all right, don't raise your hand, but honestly, have you ever done this? I mean, I tell my kids, don't text and drive. It's terrible. It's one of the worst things you can do. It's actually, you're more prone to accidents by texting and driving than somebody who drinks and drives. And you tell them all these things. And yet sometimes, as I admit it, you know, in a weak moment or a moment in crisis, I'll, uh, what I tend think is crisis, which really isn't, they could wait, I, I might reach over and text. But what do I do if I see somebody who's driving and they're sitting here with their phone and they're texting and they're driving? I'm like, look at them. They're terrible. They're awful. I mean, I'm like, I'm ready to call 911 on them. I'm ready to, to report them. I'm like, get off your phone, you idiot, right? You, you, are you that way? But yet you'll like, oh, for me, I'm, I'm a better driver. I'm more capable. I can handle this. I'm not really moving at a fast speed. And so you see, the point is we're all, we can justify self-deception. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we're better than we actually are. What's the cure for hypocrisy? I'm going to give you three things. The third one's going to be the best. First two are important. Humility. Humility. Just, just admitting that you're susceptible to great hypocrisy. Not just hypocrisy, great hypocrisy. Admit that 
you're tempted and maybe oftentimes give in to the temptation that when you're in certain conversations, you're going to spin yourself to be a little better. And then other conversations with other people, you're going to spin it to look a different way. That's hypocrisy. Humility. Admitting to God. God, I need you to expose my heart. I don't want pride to rule. I want to be humble. I want you to point out and show me these areas of my life where my outward and my inward aren't working together the way they should. That I'm just not being what the scripture calls a united heart. I'm a divided heart, not a united heart of one in mind and soul. So I need humility. And then the second one, mentioned this a lot. Roy talked about it last week a little bit. Intentionally intrusive relationships. We need to invite those into our lives. Invite people into our lives. Because the truth is, we're going to see things in others that we won't see in ourselves. And we're going to see something that they won't see in themselves. My wife can see the hypocrisy in me. Do I give her the permission to speak into it? Or do I get defensive the first time she brings something up? How about you with your spouse or your friends? You know, here at Grace, we try to put together kind of a pathway, discipleship pathway to help you move into these type of relationships. I got a screen to kind of just illustrate that. Um, you come in here to, go, to know Jesus better, to know his word better, to, to cre- have more passion for his name, and we worship together, and we teach and, and study the Bible together. But then we want to move you into K groups. We want to move you into these relationships where people will be hopefully like-minded. They'll be people who are on the same path as you, They're going for the same goal as you, which is to know Christ and make him known, to know and follow him in your home, in your city, in this world we live in. And so you're in community with people who are the same. You know, just like when you were a teenager, adults, teenagers, you can speak to this, how hard it is to fight against peer pressure. And when you're around people who are doing bad things, it's really tough not to kind of fall in or at least kind of go through the motions or, or make them feel like, you know, I'm not going to stand up to them. I'm just going to go along, you know, for the ride. I'm not going to really stand. I mean, it's hard. And so we want to put you with people who are like-minded, who can help you grow stronger. But then even from, from that, there's opportunities to branch out in what we call fight clubs and into these relationships where you can be two or three together and you can be really, really under the hood so to speak, of your life and get to know one another and be honest and create an environment, a culture there where you can say, hey, you know, I'm really, really struggling with this. I need you guys to pray for me. I need you to hold me accountable in this. I need you to, to really, really hold my feet to the fire. Because probably that conversation in that way couldn't happen in K-Group, even though K-Group is, is an amazing time of community, that, that can happen in that group of two or three. And then we move from here to serve and to change and make an impact because God is discipling us to go and make disciples of our world and impact our community. And so we need great humility. We need intentionally intrusive relationships because Proverbs 1.7 says, fools despise wisdom and instruction, right? That's true, right? Fools, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see the struggles in their life. They don't want you telling them, but... We don't want to be foolish, do we? And in Romans 2, 24, Paul writes to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He says this hypocrisy that goes on 
you're, you're, my name is being blasphemed. My name is, is, is being put down among these people who don't know you. And so it's human nature, again, to think we're better than we are. So what's the third and final and most important cure? Here it is. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. If you are a resolution person, I hope that one of your resolutions this year will be to be with Jesus more than you were last year. Because if you want to look like Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, you've got to hang around Jesus, right? If you want to be just like Jesus, you spend time with Jesus. You get to know him. And you become more and more molded in his image. You become filled more and more with his love. And you walk more and more in his grace. And so the cure for hypocrisy, humility. Admitting that you struggle, even if you don't see it. Enter into those intentionally intrusive relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you, and you give them permission. And then thirdly, and most importantly, be with Jesus. Learn from the master himself. So look what Mark does next. I I believe he purposely arranges these events to highlight the hypocrisy of Israel. And maybe you've never seen this fit together this way, but, but it's really, really a cool picture what Jesus here does he paints this picture of this hypocrisy and what he's the end result here is going to be what he's going to show look at verse 15 he says and they came to jerusalem so after the fig tree they come to jerusalem and there he goes he goes back into the temple and you got to think that probably the day before he saw this going on he's like i'm going to take care of it later right now is not the time he enters back in to the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it, made it into a den of robbers? Get the picture here. Jesus goes into the place where worship should be happening. God's presence in a special way is there at the temple. Yet he walks in and there's this, there's this chaos. It's, it's this, this crazy, all this, all this sale, selling and buying and all this thing going on. And so we see Jesus here. He, he, he's upset. He, he curses his tree, right? I mean, what's going on with Jesus? This is unusual behavior. He curses a tree. It's the first negative miracle he does in the gospel. The only negative miracle I think he does in the gospel and then the next thing he goes in, he gets physical. I mean, he starts turning tables over. He's blocking people's way into going through the temple. What in the world is happening here? What's going on? And, you know, and for, for years as I looked at this passage of Scripture, I thought that the main issue here was the des- desecration of the temple, that Jesus was filled with anger and seeing all these secular activities as commerce, the cheating, taking advantage of the poor, all of this going on. I thought that was the central issue here. Don't get me wrong. That is the issue. That is one of the issues. But I think it's, it's pointing to something bigger and more foundational than this. So, yes, the poor are being taken advantage of. These money changers who are switching over Roman currency into currency where it's the Jewish currency, so they, as the law instructed, so they could buy their offerings. These pigeons that were there is a practical thing, right? They needed to, to, to offer these, and it's hard to bring those in um, because the long distance many people were traveling. So they were sold there for convenience purposes, but yet Jesus is is super angry, 
to the point where he gets physical here because of what's going on. So let me point out to you the temple area on this map. Let me show you this. All right. Here, here's what I think the lesson that maybe we can learn today from this and take from it, but that we maybe have never known, not just to gain more knowledge, but so our hearts can be rid of the hypocrisy and see the greatness of Jesus. Most of this commerce and activities, it was going on in this outer area of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. So let's fall back to, again, what was Israel's purpose? They were to be a light to the nations. They were those who were supposed to expose the Gentiles to the great God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. Yet, the very place and the only place where the Gentiles were allowed to come into the temple and worship and pray, the Jewish leaders thought this would be the ideal place to sell and basically set up a stockyard, right? This is a great place. Why? Because the Jews hated the Gentiles. They despised the Gentiles. They had strayed so far from God's intention for what they were to be about. And while they were legally obligated to provide Gentiles entrance into the temple, they thought, hey, practically this is the place we need to put all the pigeons and all the commerce and the money trade. And so you see, see what Jesus is doing? He's pointing out to them they're missing the point. They have all of this religious activity going on, but yet they took this area where the Gentiles could come and come to God, and they turned it into the stockyard. And so Jesus was addressing the fact that there was no room for the Gentiles and outcasts to come and to worship God. There was no, no place for them. And so yet Israel claimed to be religious, these pious religious leaders, they knew scripture, they could quote scripture, they memorized books of the Bible, they fasted and they prayed and made a big show, yet they despised the outcast, they despised the Gentile. Basically, God, we don't care about your purpose for us. We want to do what we want to do. What about us? We can kind of turn into the, kind of the same thing, right? We've become so happy with learning more, so content with having a few good Christian friends that we miss that last part of the discipleship pathway is all of this is for a purpose, which is to glorify God and to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. And so our discipleship should always end in what we call evangelism, letting our light shine before men. They can see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That's what God has called us to be. So when we allow our learning and growing about knowledge about God just to turn into a silo, we do what Israel did. We forgot what the mission God gave us. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. So, let me ask you. Do you 
find that Sunday is kind of like that is your primary, like, religious thing that you do? Like, Sunday is like, wow, check that off, God. I made it four. I've been there four straight weeks I've been to church. Man, I'm doing good. Maybe you're falling into, and maybe I'm guilty of falling into the same thing Israel was falling into. I'm doing all the religious activity, but my heart isn't the heart of Jesus. To go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. My heart isn't to go and make disciples. I feel pretty content. So do we encourage hypocrisy at Grace Church by maybe giving the impression to those who we do come across during the week that maybe we are a little more together than what we really are and people think, well, I can't really be a part of Grace Church because I'm not, I'm not arrived yet. You know, I'm not quite to that level, all right? You know, that, that they're, they're pretty, pretty moral, good, holy people at Grace Church. I see them walking through town. I see the way they respond and act, and those are all good things. But do we allow the fact that we're not authentic and real and honest and truthful kind of set a barrier for those who are weak in their faith or those who don't even know Christ and they're unwilling to engage? Or do we have we lost the ability even maybe to communicate with those who don't know Christ? That can be so guilty of those of us who are on the inside of church life. But sometimes we forget like even how to talk to unbelievers, how to, how to engage unbelievers. I'm not talking about you have to go and speak their language and act cool, you know, and I, I got I to gotta pretend to be like them so I can, you know, be relevant and, and, and engage them. I'm talking about do you even know how to have just small talk, conversation with an unbeliever? That's what Jesus did a lot. Jesus was able to, he was the master of just small talk. He was a master of just being able to start a conversation with a woman at the well who had five former husbands and now was living in sin. Jesus, what are you engaging her for? I've come for the lost sheep. I've come to rescue those who need it. It's not the well who need a doctor, right? It's the sick, Scripture says, who need the doctor. So let me ask you this. 2020, is there somebody who is in your normal flow of life, maybe somebody at work, somebody at the restaurant you go to, somebody who is a colleague, somebody who you're around who needs Jesus that the, probably truthfully, if it wasn't for your desire to see them come to Jesus, you probably naturally wouldn't be drawn to that person. But because of Jesus, you know that you need to be more involved in their life, more engaged in their life. Is there anyone like that? Let me ask you this. Will you pray and ask God to humble you and help you make an intentional effort to befriend someone like that? Honestly, I'm not, I'm not just saying that. I mean, I'm, think, allow a name, a face to come into your mind right now. Is there someone that you can engage for the cause of Christ, befriend for the cause of Christ? Not a fake friendship just to see them come to Christ, but an authentic, real friendship with the purpose always in your mind. This person has a soul that will live for eternity somewhere. This person, I can make an impact on him. I'll be the first to admit, it's so hard to, to get out of our comfort zone. 
It's so hard to go to those who are, we have nothing in common with whatsoever. And so much of it is pride. You may hide it, cloak it behind, well, I just don't know what to say, I don't know how to act, but that's pride. That's pride. You're thinking too much about yourself. You've got to trust God in these situations. Trust, as, as Jesus told his followers, the Holy Spirit will give you those words that you need when you need them. And so Jesus does this in the temple. He makes this uh, huge statement. And verse 18, look what happens. It, it, it's kind of all com- culminating. I mean, we're, we're one week away, less than a week away from the crucifixion here. We're one week away, Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, one week apart. All right, he, he's angered the priests and the scribes to the point now, look what it says in verse 18, when they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. All right, I mean, not just kill him, I mean, destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they'd had enough. And so over the next weeks, we're going to see this final week, this passion week of Jesus and all that transpires. Because Jesus, this was the final straw for the religious leaders. Coming into their temple, coming in God's house and doing this, turning the tables over, blocking people from doing defiling things to the temple. So Jesus leaves. He's back with his disciples. They're headed back. And it says, when evening came, and they went out of the city, probably back to Bethany. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And I think this whole fig tree object lesson is a big prophetic symbol The fig tree represented Israel and the fact that the temple and all that it stood for would soon be destroyed. The temple and everything that it stood for was about to be destroyed. Yes, maybe if you know history, you're like, oh, that's 70, you're 70, we're still a few years away. No, come the end of the week and Jesus' resurrection, by all practical purposes, the temple's destroyed, right? It may not be physically destroyed for a few more years. But everything that was happening there, the sacrifices, the offerings for atoning of the sin, Jesus does away with completely. His death and his resurrection, he is now the way that we access God. And so this whole thing would be obsolete completely. It took a few years for the church to realize that. But only in Jesus is forgiveness of sins available. And so I think that's why when Jesus, in Matthew's account, when Jesus left the temple for the last time, he said, your house is left to you desolate. I'm just, you can feel the frustration. Your house is left to you desolate. Jesus changes everything. All the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices were all just shadows pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so Jesus was not only bringing a decisive end to the hollow religiosity of the religious leaders of Israel, but even more significant, he was changing how people relate to God. Jesus himself is the only way to God. And that's why we say here it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the way 
He's the truth. He's the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. And so Jesus welcomes all people. The Jews may have said, we don't have room for you Gentiles. Jesus, his church, welcomes all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And not to a temple, not to a location in a city, but he welcomes him into the very holy of holies. The true holy is the holy, which is God's presence, which only a priest could access once a year in that temple. But now, because of Jesus, we can enter boldly, Hebrews says, into the presence of God to find help and strength in the time of need. How awesome is that? Jesus and his sacrifice made that possible. So that's why I said the most important thing is be with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our K groups, our relationships, it's all about Jesus. The reason you engage in intentionally intrusive relationships is because it's all about Jesus, because I want my life to be like Jesus. I want to shine the light of Jesus. I want to fulfill the mission that he's called me to fulfill. And left to myself, I'm full of hypocrisy, full of sin. But that's why I don't make it about me. I humble myself. I pursue hard after Jesus. Pursue hard after fighting sin. And I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. But you get up and you keep going after Jesus. And God begins reproducing his life and his character in us in some way, shape, or form. Not fully in this life, not completely in this life. You know, I love the fact that one of the ways where we connect and how we can be, if you want to use the word, in, a, in the right sense of the word, relevant to those who don't know Jesus is being like Jesus. And understanding in humility that truthfully, you're an outcast. And I'm an outcast if it wasn't for Jesus. Paul tells us in Corinthians that, Je- that God chose the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world. You see, you and I are the outcast in reality. And it's becoming more and more clear in our nation every day that we're going to be even more and more outcasts. But we need to own that because that's kind of that's the, the position the early church was in. For 300 years, until Constantine legalized Christianity, if you became a Christian, if you took up your cross, if you made a profession of faith, you're probably going to lose your job, your family possibly, your life possibly. You knew coming in, there's a lot at stake here to follow Jesus. But you see, hypocrisy is so easy because there isn't no, there's no resistance. There, there's no, you know, we can just do the Christian thing and it's kind of advantageous to us even at times maybe in our culture. But what happens when persecution comes? and and resistance comes. Those who truly know Jesus and understand what Jesus did for them, those people will march on. And it's those who, it's all been a sham, 
there's no fruit, it's just relig religiosity going through the motions. Those people throw in the towel. They're like, why would I do this? There's no, th no advantages for me here. So maybe this purifying thing is a good thing for God's church. But let's expose, allow God to expose the hypocrisy. Let's pray and humble ourselves and make our lives about Jesus. Let me give you five quickly C words. Consider what's been said. Consider it. Consider your own life. Allow God to show you the hypocrisy that's there. Those areas where you're like, in reality, it's something totally different. Confess it. The Bible calls that repenting, confessing. You confess your sins. You confess your weakness. You commit your life to Jesus. I'm confessing it, and now I'm committing to Jesus instead. I'm turning from that sin. And change is possible, not because of you and your willpower and your effort. Change is possible because of Jesus. And then the final C today is communion. We're going to be taking communion. And communion is really the, the ultimate opportunity to consider, to confess, to pray for change. That's really the time where God says, look, do this in remembrance of my sacrifice. What I did to destroy this religious system that had been broken and corrupted. To bring in me as the only way to God. The true Messiah bringing in his kingdom. And today we reflect upon his death. We think about the sacrifice that he made on our behalf.